California Frontier Podcast, Episode 10. The California Frontier Podcast is dedicated to helping you explore the Golden State's unique history, culture, and environment. I'm Damian Bassage, and I'm your host. Oftentimes when we deal with history or uh, events in the past, we come across stories that are a little bit out of the boundaries of what we consider to be normal. Uh, Stories like the one we're going to discuss today about a levitating cross on the coast of Monterey. Our guest today, Skylar Reedy, is a historian working on a PhD at the University of Southern California. And the conversation that I'm going to have with him really helps reframe how we think about these stories and how we think about what people did with them, the people who told them, the people who responded to them, and why perhaps our mentality today is somewhat handicapped in dealing with these kind of stories. So, Uh, I hope you enjoy this. I think it's going to give you a lot to chew on. And without further ado, let's listen to my interview with Skylar Reedy. Well, I'm here with Skylar Reedy, and I'm excited to talk to you. I I was really fascinated both by your talk at the Western History Association Conference, which is where we met, and by uh, your recent one at the um, California Missions Conference. So before we get into your expertise and the fascinating topic of the the levitating cross and and all the other things that go with that um can you tell me a little bit about uh who you are where where are you from originally sure um well first off thank you very much for having me on the podcast i'm really excited to talk to you and your listeners a little more um but yeah a little bit of background about me um so i grew up in california um, All right. I grew up in Encinitas, California, which I don't know if uh, any of the listeners know where that is, but it's northern San Diego County. Um, and growing up in Encinitas, I got very interested in religion from a young age um, because it's, it's a fascinating town. And it's a real center of a lot of sort of yoga, new age, uh, that whole scene. Um, from a ways back, you know, into the 1930s, and Encinitas has been a, a center of that. And so I grew up exposed to that, but it also has, you know, a huge evangelical Christian presence. And also, you know, with more uh, recent immigration from Mexico, a huge, you know, Spanish-speaking Catholic community. So I grew up with, you know, I took, I took yoga in my high school, and we, like, we wouldn't do yoga if there was a full moon because there was too much energy. Uh, so I have that in one year. And then, you know, I've also got all kinds of evangelical, you know, Switchfoot is from my hometown, which for a very specific uh, evangelical mid-aughts listener, that reference really landed. But for everyone else, you know, this was a center of sort of, you know, people ask people, asking, you know, are you saved? Have you accepted Jesus? So all of that is going on. And, you know, you look around town and Our Lady of Guadalupe is staring back from walls and bumper stickers and tattoos. So this real mix of religions 
and at the same time, I always grew up with this sense that like, all right, that's religion, but then there's, there's like the mainstream world. There's, there's some official reality and all these religions and religious experiences and people being like, Oh yeah, I got healed by a crystal. I got healed by a preacher. It's that's always kind of separate from the secular core of things, right? The mainstream. And so I was fascinated by that, right? Like, why is there this one official reality that we can kind of talk about in public? But then you get to know anybody in our town and they'll start telling you about, you know, times somebody had a dream in their, at their church and it came true. And somebody else is going to say they saw a UFO. And it's like, all of us have these lives that are way beyond world uh and so why is that and it always fascinated me and now i think my dissertation is kind of a an attempt to answer that like where did this secular thing come from and why do so many people have these lives that are go way beyond um that official secular reality so how did that get you to the California missions and a levitating cross off the coast of Monterey <laughs> or on the coast of Monterey, excuse me. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I started looking, um, you know, I lived outside of California, I should say for undergrad. And then I lived briefly in Texas and Colorado and then coming back to California for grad school, I was like, okay, like this place really is unique. There's something going on in California that isn't, happening elsewhere. I want to understand this place. And so I started researching religion and casting kind of a broad net into the 20th century and also all the way back into the 18th. And it's the more I studied the missions, the more I was struck that this is a world that is uh, in a lot of ways really, really different from the present. But in other ways, it kind of resembles, you know, what I grew up with in Encinitas. And so I wanted to make sense of, you know, what the, what California was like before modernity, right? Because I didn't really understand what it means to be modern and how we became modern and what happened. And I wrestle with some of that in my dissertation when I talk about the 19th century. But to figure any of that out, I had to say, okay, what, what does it look like when a society isn't modern? Right? What are the religious ideas, the values, the practices? How do people relate to each other? How do they relate to nature, to non-humans? And what does that look like before modernity? And so for that, I've been digging into the missions and just consistently amazed at the richness of the stuff I find. You know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned modernity because what constitutes being modern, what time period constitutes mm -hmm. modernity is also an interesting one, especially when you're dealing with Latin America and, and mm -hmm. Alta California as part of that, you know, in the 19th century, you could say that so much that the 19th century we're in full on modernity, but not necessarily in the frontier Yeah, at the edge of the Spanish empire. Mm -hmm. I think it's around 1810, maybe. Uh, Narciso Duran is father president of the missions. And somebody comes, some ship comes ashore, and they've got Enlightenment books with them, like Voltaire, Rousseau. Duran confiscates it, and he burns it on the coast. 
right? So the French Revolution has already happened. The American Revolution has already happened, but it's not getting in here, right? I mean, this is still very much the Baroque world. Yeah, it's very interesting. Though, though I do know that some exceptions were made, mm -hmm. right, for for the young Mariano Guadalupe Vallejo and Jose Castro. Mm -hmm. But it's a very select group of people that's allowed access right. to those books. Yeah, I mean, the, the upper echelons of the military, I think they have their own networks where they can get this stuff up from Mexico City and they're, you know, they're trying to be as modern as possible, right? To like mod, you know, regulate, regularize the military administration up here. So they're right. trying to get on some of this stuff. Um, but then the, the Padres are very much, you know, not that they're backwards looking, right? I think it's a mistake if we say like, oh, they wanted to go back to medieval times. They wanted to build a whole new world, right? They had a vision for the 19th, 20th, 21st century. Uh, and it just wasn't at all what's come about. Um, but they, they did not think they were going backwards. They were pushing straight ahead with, uh, you know, another three centuries of counter-reformation. <laughs> uh, that's a good point. I never thought about it that way. So how do we get from that to a, um, a levitating cross? Tell, tell me about that. Sure. Well, the levitating cross is where California begins. Um, so this comes about... Um, Father Juan Crespi and Gaspar Portola are on a land expedition. They're the first people um, to walk to Monterey because ships have been coming to Monterey for a while. And right now, Sarah and the rest of the missionaries and the first wave of Spaniards are all in San Diego. And so Sarah says, we're going to send up this mission. I'll stay in San Diego. You guys go overland and then we'll send a ship that's going to meet you in Monterey and you'll found the second mission up at Monterey. Well, Crespi and Portola set off and they make it all the way up, but the maps that they have with them are really inaccurate. Like it just has the wrong latitude and longitude. Um, the description that it gives of Monterey Bay is a description that would make sense if you were on a ship out at sea looking in, but it makes no sense pine trees. So they don't realize they've made it to Monterey. They get extremely lost. And in the meantime, that ship that was supposed to meet them sinks out at sea. So these guys are desperate. They decide, all right, we're gonna turn around, we're going back to San Diego, but we still, and they're starving, right? Super hungry. Uh, one of the days they're still hungry that a deer walks across the path in front of them and the soldier tries to shoot it, but his hands are shaking so bad he can't aim his musket. So they're in dire straits. They plant this cross and they say, all right, we'll put up this cross. Hopefully a ship at sea will see it and then, you know, find us. We'll, we'll put a message in a bottle at the base of it. And sorry, remind me, this is 1769, thereabouts? Yeah. yeah, 1769. So this is, Sarah has just founded Mission San Diego. Um, so they set up this cross and they leave. And they get back to San Diego. They tell Sarah that this expedition failed. Sarah says, all right, we're going to do it again. All right. So you guys go back up the coast. 
This time I'll go on the ship and I'll meet you in Monterey. And this is Father Junipero Serra. Father Junipero Serra, yeah. And so the second time they do it, everything goes off without a hitch. You know, the party finds Monterey, the ship gets there on time, but something really weird happens. When Crespi is coming back into Monterey Bay, he sees that cross that he planted on the first expedition. Only now, it's covered in feathers and paint set up around the base of it. There are sticks, stones, there's dried sardines, venison, and he's super weirded out. What is going on? And the native people who had been super standoffish the first time he was in Monterey, he says, as he's looking at this cross, they walk out of the forest, smiling, happy, like they've known him their whole lives. So he doesn't understand what's happened. I mean, he's happy. These, the native folks seem friendly all of a sudden, but he doesn't know why the cross is painted like this. And it's only a year or two later when people have finally started to bridge some of the language divide. You know, a few of the priests and soldiers are learning native languages. Some native people are learning Spanish. They're able to work this out. And we have records of two separate conversations where a native person tells one of the Spaniards, yeah, after you guys planted that cross the first time, you left and some of us were out at night and we saw that cross lift up off the ground, levitate, and they say it glowed as bright as the sun and then it sat back down. And so the, the native people see this, right? They're kind of scared, uh, but they also see maybe there's an opportunity here. Something's going on. We got it. We don't know what this thing is, but we want to make it our friend. All right. And so that's why they go out with feathers, paint. You know, that food that was at the base of it is sort of an offering, right? A gift. Here, take this. And they forge an alliance with this cross. And that explains why when Crespi returns, they're suddenly friendly because they see him coming and they say, okay, well, you're friends with the cross. All right, we're friends with the cross. You come on in, come on in. Let's let's hear what you have to say. And it's that sort of social relationship with this cross that enables the founding of Mission Monterey or Mission uh, Carmel in Monterey. So, okay, so that's a that's an interesting story, and um, I mean, if it were true, that would be really fantastic. Both. Yeah in the sense of, wow, how fascinating, but also the sense of fantastic, like from fantasy, right? Right. <laughs> so, but you, but you say that there's something more to that in terms of how we understand or how modern people, contemporary people understand, uh, looking back, mm -hmm. understand that time period. Right. I mean, I think it's, it's obviously, it's very startling, right? The first time I came across this, in, I think I was reading Palou's account of Sarah's life. It just stands out like, whoa, crosses aren't supposed to levitate. Um, and it would be easy to brush it off, right, if it only appeared in one place. But we have two separate accounts of this happening, right? And, you know, you do history in the Spanish borderlands. Anytime there's an event and the only eyewitnesses are Native people, almost impossible to get any evidence of, right? But here we have two separate accounts 
from a native person who says they saw it speaking to two separate Spaniards. And then on top of that, we have um, some circumstantial evidence, right, of Crespi's account of describing this cross painting. So something's going on, right? Something about this situation is producing these stories. Um, and so this is where I try to think, you know, instead of looking at just one individual and being like, well, is this person telling the truth or not? You got to look at it like a whole network of people and objects that all fit together. I, you could think of it kind of like a science lab, right? In a scientific laboratory, it's not like you just have one scientist and you've got to either take his word for it or reject what he's saying. Instead, right. you've got a team of scientists and petri dishes, thermometers, other science. I'm a historian. I don't really know what they have in labs. Yeah. <laughs> right. I hear you. <laughs> science stuff. And it's that network of people and objects that produces scientific results. And I kind of think of the missions in the same way, that you have a network that includes human beings. You know, in this case, we have the Spaniards the native people, we also have the cross itself. And that, you know, and we have all these feathers and offerings that are left for the cross. And something about this, you know, this network of human and non-human actors is then producing these stories. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, we can just say, well, yeah, I mean, it's this network, they're all kind of, they're all kind of wrong, though, crosses can't levitate. Uh, but I worry that that's too anachronistic. Right. We're taking a sort of modern idea of what is and isn't possible and applying it to the missions. And I think those modern ideas, you know, we have to admit that we are just as bound up in a network of other human beings, of computers and cell phone towers and all this stuff that in the modern world gives us our possibilities. And we have to kind of step out of it. I mean, it's we can't really step out of our own bodies to be historians, right? Like I'm always going to be me when I approach the work. But I have to, as much as I can, suspend some of the assumptions that I take for granted and say, okay, what are the possibilities that are being generated? What are the kinds of relationships that are being generated in an encounter in the borderlands? you know, with this cross or at a mission and then try to step into, you know, as much as I can to understand what's going on here in terms that would have made sense to, you know, Sarah and Crespi and the native people. So you're, you're not starting from the standpoint that, Hey, probably the Spanish made this up because this is a good story that, that supports the narrative. I don't think so, um, because for one thing, that thing where Crespi finds the cross painted, that happens years before either Sarah or Palou have this conversation, right? So Sarah and Palou both say that they had a conversation with a native person who tells them that this happened. Crespi writes a letter though, a couple days after he finds the cross, before anyone has been able to cross the language barrier where he says, yeah, we got there. The cross is painted. It has feathers. I don't know what's happening. Also, all of the native people who wouldn't give us the time of day on the last expedition are now really friendly. 
So I think there's, you know, something happens with that cross. Something makes those native people decide to paint it. And so these native people are approaching the cross. They're entering into, I think, what is really a social relationship with it, where they're exchanging gifts, they're painting it. They're, and remember, you know, paint and feathers are clothing. That's ritual regalia that native people would have also worn. So this cross is, you know, it's not a human being, it's a cross, but it has a social life. Um, and if we look at Spanish rituals too, we also see crosses taking on attributes of personhood, right? There are the Good Friday liturgy that is still said and now in English or Spanish, but is still said in California, it includes prayers where the priest and the congregation speak to the cross, right? The, the wood itself. And so even if this cross isn't levitating, it definitely has a social life. And I think also, you know, when we get hung up on this question of like, did it levitate? Did it not? We're kind of getting, it's almost anachronistic because we're very focused on like, you know, that would be fantastic if that happened. Mm -hmm. Really, really wild. For native people and missionaries, it's not that things like that happened every day. But it was well within the realm of possibility. Like, yeah, sometimes there's things levitate, you know. You see dead people come back. You see strange lights in the sky. And this is, this is part of life. Um, and so at no point, I think, do they get hung up on a question of belief or plausibility. But sorry. that's 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 interesting that you say that because – Usually, I think oftentimes we think of a binary between um, Euro-American, let's say, or in this case, Latin American uh, culture and Mm -hmm. indigenous culture. And when we think of, and and there's this big uh, divide between the two, and um, they, they don't really understand each other. And and what and what you're kind of saying is that the divide isn't so much between European Western culture and indigenous culture from this standpoint, mm-hmm. but really between modern contemporary people and let's say early modern or pre-modern people. Is that what Absolutely. you're kind of getting at? That almost like the Spanish had, from a certain standpoint, more in common with the native people at least their worldview mm-hmm. or their, their view of the supernatural, et cetera, than we do with, with either of them. I think for sure. Um, I think there are huge similarities um, and there's a real gulf between us and them. And that's not across the board. I mean, there are probably mm-hmm. certain ways that we do really have more in common with the Spaniards, mm-hmm. but really around religion. I think there is a lot more, you know, pre-modern people, Spanish, indigenous, you know, Himalayan, right, have more in common with each other than people living in this secular age. And I think one of the biggest differences is on this question of belief, right? Like it's, it's hard for us to talk about religion without talking about it in terms of belief, right? Well, we believe this, they believe that. But for a lot of these people, Spanish and indigenous, I think these things were never a question of belief, right? The Spaniards and Indians didn't believe 
that there were spirits in the world that could help or harm them. They just knew it. They lived every day with spirits that could help or harm them. And religion wasn't about whether or not you believe in it. It was about how you interact with it. Um, so I'll give another example. This is a story from um, a mission in early 19th century. And so there's a Native American man who has converted, moved to the mission, he's been baptized, and then he gets sick. Uh, and this is Southern California. I believe um, this is at Mission San Juan Capistrano, maybe Mission San Luis Rey. Um, but he falls ill. And the first thing he does is he goes, he leaves the mission and he goes to visit a native healer. And he tells the guy, like, listen, you know, I, I got baptized a few years ago. I've been living at the mission and now I'm sick. What's going on? And the native healer looks, he says, well, listen, you made the old gods angry, right? You turned your back on them. You went, you live at the mission now. You don't do the old right dances. And that's why you're sick. They're punishing you. And so the, the sick man is he's, he's upset. He goes to the missionary and he tells the missionary about this. And the missionary, he says, you know, I went to the healer. The healer says, I'm sick because I've angered these uh, deities. And the priest says, yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> I mean, the, the native healer, he knows about those deities. You know, I call them demons, but they're real. Um, and yeah, they're probably angry that you came to the mission and they're probably making you sick. And he says, so let me give you, first off, let's do a confession. And I suspect this might've been a confession uh, and the next step would have been an exorcism. Because mm -hmm. to do an exorcism, you need to do a confession first. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, in, in some way he's saying like, yeah, like you're, you're getting sick because of these spirits. So let me bring you tighter into the community. Let's do this ritual and then you'll be safe. And we don't know what happens next, really. But the priest says it's you know, sort of an unsatisfactory confession, which doesn't mean the guy confessed something that was beyond the pale. It means that the sick man was unwilling to do the ritual correctly. He probably wouldn't do a penance that got assigned to him, or he didn't know the right words, something. But the priest says this guy won't do confession properly. And then the priest just kind of throws up his hands. He says, well, if you're not going to do the ritual the right way, I can't help you. And it ends up with both the native healer and the priest kind of giving up on this guy saying, well, you're not willing to commit to my way of doing things. And therefore I'm just going to leave you. And I mean, the heartbreaking thing is that this man ends up dying of his illness, mm. but as a historian, you know, we look at this case and what's amazing is the question of belief never comes up once, right? The native elder doesn't get angry, say, oh, you believe in the Catholic catechism now. You stopped believing in our religion, right? And the priest never says, you know, I need you to come back and believe in Jesus and stop believing in these uh, local deities. The priest believes in the local deities. He says, yeah, they're real. They're out there. And I don't need you to change your mind. I need you to do a proper penance and confession. And so here we see that, you know, religion at this time, it's not about belief. And this is what's so hard for modern people to get our heads around is that these people aren't dealing 
primarily with belief. They're dealing with relationships and with actions, right? With rituals. You do these rituals to maintain these relationships. And that's what defines which religious community you're in. It's interesting you should mention that because I think that when we, yeah, historians and other people try and understand um, the line between, con- you know, between conversion and syncretism, et cetera, mm-hmm. like did Native Americans convert, actually convert to Catholicism? Uh, did they mix their own beliefs together? Uh, how much of them did, how much of them didn't, et cetera? Um, it, it becomes so difficult to parse mm-hmm. out when you look at it as this binary, you know, and especially from a 21st century lens, whereas what you're saying is, is it's not necessary. It's not a question of um, jettisoning one uh, set of beliefs and adopting another. Mm-hmm. It's. And breaking ties essentially with another mm-hmm. community from that standpoint or adopting one community mm-hmm. as your primary community. Right. And, and letting the other one go as, as no longer so important or binding on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it really comes down to, you know, it's not about what you believe it's about who, you know, yeah. and it's about these relationships that get affirmed through ritual. Um, and so we see that. And though, it's sometimes it is a really stark thing of like you are in this community and then you leave and you get baptized and you're in the missions. But we also see, you know, some of these relationships, they remain. And that's where, you know, the sort of, you know, the debate, did they convert? Did they not convert? Or was it syncretism? You know, those three options, they're a little too stark. Um, but the syncretism thing, I think it can kind of come back where instead of saying like, well, does this person have some Catholic beliefs and then some older beliefs mixed together. You know, that's, I feel like we're never going to really know what was in people's heads. Um, well, if, it, kind of fact, if you go to, if you go to, I mean, let's leave aside Latin America or Central America, South America, Central America. Let's talk about if you go to Italy, right? Oh, yeah. Or there are places where they've been Christian for 2000 years practically. And there are still what we would call superstitions or things mm-hmm. that that definitely would not be considered part of an Orthodox Catholicism, right? Yeah. And they persist. Does that mean that 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 those people were never converted? Mm-hmm. It's a. Uh, it's you're. I think you're exactly right. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to get more Catholic, right, mm-hmm. than Southern Italians. Sure. And yet, or, you know, Ireland, right? St. Patrick's Day is coming. As we record, this is a few days away. I don't know when it's going to go out. But, you know, the St. Patrick's breastplate is this famous uh, old prayer. And, you know, I bind unto myself today the strong name of the Trinity. And it's like, oh, that sounds pretty Catholic. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Oh, that's real Catholic. And then you go, I bind unto myself today the power of the wind. And it's like, whoa, buddy. <laughs> but this is, this is a, a Catholic prayer, right? And it's very, in some ways, you know, it seems like it's borrowing on older pre-Christian Irish ideas. But some of this too is that, you know, Catholicism and other, you know, Abrahamic monotheistic religions, 
have before the modern era, they were a lot more open to this. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, some of the stuff is in the Old Testament. There's stuff that talks about, you know, rocks and trees praising God. And it's like, mm -hmm. this is a little, I don't know if it's animist, but there's something's going on here that's a little bit beyond our modern idea. Um, so, yeah, I think that when we see this happening in California, it's not very different from stuff that was happening in Mexico, in Peru, and then a, a millennium earlier in Ireland, in Italy, in Europe. So uh, any other stories about Alta California in this regard of, of objects or that, that, that have sort of take on a, a social, take on a almost human dimension? Sure. Um, I mean, one thing that I've been looking at is trying to think about natural objects and the relationships they have. You know, I touched on this a second ago when I said the Old Testament, right, mentions rocks and trees praising God. Well, some of those Old Testament passages were prayers that the Franciscans would recite pretty often. So this stuff is in their head. Um, and then there's, you know, a common understanding that, um, you know, the forces of nature are also in relationship with God, are in relationship with saints. So let me, let me give you an example. There's at Mission San Antonio in the 1770s, there's a cold snap that comes in. This is right after uh, Easter. So it's in the spring. There's a really late frost and it wipes out their wheat crop. And the Padres are, are terrified, right? This was all of their food. The native people, I think, are pretty, pretty freaked out. This was the food they were all going to be eating too. And so they look out on the fields. The, the frost goes and then everything looks dead. But the priests say, all right, you know, this is Mission San Antonio. We are going to do a novena to St. Anthony. He's our patron. He, he's part of our community. Right? He kind of, I don't want to say he owes us a favor, but, you know, in the same way that, you know, if a priest was having a hard time, he could turn to Father Sarah, right? He says, you're up the chain of command for me. I need some help with something. Or, you know, a Spanish, a young man could go to his dad or his granddad. Listen, I got a problem. I need some help. Well, they have that same kind of relationship with St. Anthony, who's not a human being in the conventional sense, though he was a real historical person. And so they go to St. Anthony. They say, we need your help. And the priests and the native people do nine days of prayer, uh, which is a novena. And they do it with uh, a painting. And I just finally found that painting that they used, probably. And it shows St. Anthony holding a blossoming lily, which uh -huh. is the symbol of purity, right? Right, right, right. Uh, but the native people don't have that iconography of, you know, Catholic saints going. But they do see the, this big blossoming green thing in the guy's hand. So I think that's got to be part of this, too. So they pray for nine days. And the priests are so confident. They say, all right, keep watering the fields. I know everything looks dead. But starting on day one of this novena, we keep watering it. And by the end, St. Anthony is going to come through. And lo and behold, on the ninth day of the novena, there's green shoots coming out at the base of those stalks. So what happened here, right? I mean, there's one way to tell the story that's just like, yeah, St. Anthony came through. 
St. Anthony prayed to God. God controls the wheat. St. Anthony is, I think in a certain sense, is personally attached to these crops because they're the crops of his mission and he helps them grow. All right, so that's one way to tell the story. We could also look at it, say, well, you know, soil is a natural insulator, right? This is why if you've ever been out on a really hot day and you like stick your hand into your lawn, it's cool down there, mm -hmm. right? Same with a really cold day. The below the soil, it'll retain some warmth. So it's possible that this cold snap was cold enough to kill everything on the surface, but the roots stayed warm under, you know, a blanket of dirt. And that then when the native people keep watering them, even though the tops are dead, those roots come back to life. So why do the crops come back then? Well, we could say, okay, the crops come back because that's what plants do. Plants grow. All right, so the, the plants are doing it. We could say, no, 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 the plants only came back because of the water, right? The water is the causal mover here that's making them grow. Okay, maybe. But the water only gets poured because the native people are there, you know, doing the farm work, pouring this water out on the field. All right, so the native people made the crops grow. Well, they were only out there because the priests told them this novena is going to work. We got to keep watering. Okay. So the priests did it? Well, maybe. But the priests only did it because St. Anthony, you know, they, they trusted that St. Anthony was going to work and Saint, they knew St. Anthony was acting on their behalf. So maybe St. Anthony did it. And it's, you know, in a certain sense, we, you could make any of those claims and they'd be right-ish. They'd also be wrong. Maybe instead we say, it was all of those things together acting that brought these crops back. And we could even take it one step further. We could say, you know, as historians trying to look at this, unpack this, we get this story from the missionaries that, yes, St. Anthony made our crops grow. We start unpacking it. We say, well, maybe this whole network, right? Uh, wheat, roots, water, native people, priests, St. Anthony, painting of St. Anthony. Maybe that whole network is kind of like a machine that produces stories, right? And it spits out this story of St. Anthony helping the crops grow, right? The same way I talked about like a laboratory is this network of humans, non-humans, beakers, petri dishes, and it spits out scientific data. Well, maybe a mission is the same way. And when we come across these miracle stories, whether it's a levitating cross or illnesses and cures caused by saints, or it's this field of wheat recovering. We say, okay, that was a story that the whole machine of the mission spits out. And so then we ask ourselves, you know, well, is it true? I don't know. I'm not uh, coming on the podcast to say one way or another, but remember it's basically how a science, uh, how a laboratory produces scientific data. So we might, if we wanted to be uh, bold, say that this story of St. Anthony making wheat grow is just as true as the scientific data we get out of a lab. So what does that do then? Okay, say um, historians, scholars who study, study this era uh, start to take that approach. What does that do to how you write about history, how you talk about this time period? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it 
helps us to really approach our sources with a much more open mind. It helps us to see things a little bit more from their perspective. And I mean, some of the real takeaways, though, come when we start trying to, to take this mindset and answer some questions that are outstanding in the field. So we talked a little bit about conversion already. And it's once we are coming in at it that, you know, it's not a question of belief and that, you know, belief measures whether or not someone is, you know, really converted or hasn't converted. And instead say, yeah, it's the participation in this community that uh, measures conversion. And it also gives us a new way to think about syncretism because at a lot of missions, including Mission San Antonio, there were native rituals going on in tandem with Catholic work uh, that were responsible for fertility. So some of those people praying that novena were almost certainly uh, indigenous elders who had responsibilities and social relationships with plants. Uh, and they were responsible for those plants growing. So, you know, now that we've said, yeah, we're not thinking about this in terms of belief. We're thinking about this in terms of networks and relationships. And we're not treating these miracle stories as something that needs to be investigated and falsified or proved. But we're treating them as the product of these communities. Then we can take the miracle stories. We can take, you know, these things that seem at first blush sort of weird and paranormal. And we can say, all right, this is, this is the, the data that's getting spit out of a network of relationships. And I can take this story, right? And usually in the archives, all we have is one little story. Uh, sometimes we have the story and the art involved, which I think is really cool. But we have this, this story and we can take the story and then trace those relationships, right? And I think another way then that this can help us as historians is we can start thinking about power in new ways. And this is something that's been, you know, sort of the, the hot historiographic thing is like who had since, you know, Steve Hackle wrote um, Children of Coyote. Well, who had power in the missions? Did the missionaries wield all the power? Did native people actually have a lot of power? Was it certain high status native people who had a lot of power and were kind of lording it over other indigenous people? Was it the military had the power? And, and we, we try to trace these relationships and it's hard and it's always different in different contexts and different situations. And I think when we start thinking a little more about these uh, non-human actors and we open our mind to the possibilities that pre-modern religion allows. Then we say, yeah, 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 all of these same actors are in place. Native people, priests, you know, chiefs, commoners, uh, the military. And we can also add this other category of, you know, I don't want to say people, but persons, right? Non-human beings. We can say, yeah, crosses have power. Crosses have social roles in this situation. You know, that story of the levitating cross where we started, you know, I think that it seems like that cross really is doing some of the diplomacy that sets up that mission, you know, by first establishing a relationship with the native people, 
and then bringing the natives and the Spaniards together. They have a shared relationship with this cross, and that gives them the beginning of something they can negotiate from, which it's actually pretty familiar if uh, you're used to studying the Spanish borderlands or the Great Lakes to see a human being in a role like that, you know, like a Hemisaro Indian or a Metis fur trapper, somebody who has either their mixed race or they've spent a lot of time living in indigenous and Spanish communities. So they've got kind of one foot in both worlds. And those people are often crucial to diplomacy, right? So we've seen those people. And now all of a sudden we have a cross that's acting in that role. And we can, we can recontextualize the diplomacy of this encounter if we allow non-humans to act, um, which seems really weird and kind of uncomfortable. Like how, how can a cross act? It just a piece of wood, it just sits there. Mm-hmm. But uh, it didn't seem weird to our subjects that were studying. It didn't seem weird to Spaniards. It didn't seem weird to native people. It was, it was impressive. Crosses don't usually levitate like that. But the idea of a thing having a social life uh, was something that they were a lot more comfortable with than we are. And so, you know, if we enter into that world with them, suddenly we see in other places where like an object or a saint or, you know, uh, an ancestor has a real social life and a social role. And then we've got to put them into that matrix of power relationships that, uh, I mean, we're all trying to make sense of in the missions. I think, yeah, I think your way of looking at things really opens up. I mean, it's something I've intuited, but I think you're, you're articulating it in a way that really kind of opens up um, possibilities for, for, for looking back at this period and understanding it better and also getting back a little bit of the sense of wonder and mm-hmm. an immersion into what, what people were experiencing at that time. Because the interesting thing is that many objects are still with us, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you go to say a mission or any other historical site and you you come across all sorts of objects from bells to blankets to vestments to um, indigenous artifacts like metates, mm-hmm. things like that. And you just look at them and you move on. But when you understand that they're, that each of these objects has a, a has a being, has a, has mm-hmm. a, a deep significance for the people that interacted with it, just like, you know, our objects that we deal with in our own house have for us, mm-hmm. say, but maybe even more so because there's this uh, mystical, supernatural, um, otherworldly element that, you know, when we think about that, I think it opens up all sorts of possibilities of, of, of looking at this time period in a different light. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to to reading what you write. I'm looking forward to this dissertation. All and, right. Uh, Thank you. Hearing more conference presentations from you, uh, um, articles that you write. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that because I think you, you're you adding a really important element to this whole uh, debate and discussion that there is around 
the mission era, which is which is such a a controversial mm-hmm. um, subject to this day. Yeah, without a doubt. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, and it's I'm not uh, saying I have all of the answers figured out, but I think that a lot of this, you know, it kind of helps us look at old documents in a new light, right? And look at some of these old puzzles we've had of, you know, who really had power at the missions? Did people really convert or did they not? Or was it syncretism? And, you know, when we start adding non-humans in and when we start treating these miracle stories as the product of these networks instead of just like something weird that we have to shunt aside, then I think it helps us you know, get a fresh perspective on some of these old questions. So I'm really excited to continue my research and continue talking with you and with all the other uh, great scholars who are working in this field. Well, Skylar Reedy, I want to want to thank you, and um, you know, hopefully, as things go on, we can we can talk again and, and share our conversation with the people who listen to this podcast. Well, I hope you got as much out of that conversation as I did. I think what Skylar has to say really is a great reminder about when we deal with events and people in the past to take into account worldview, and especially the religious worldview. Because for people in earlier centuries, the religious worldview wasn't just a moral code, but it regulated the way people dealt with the invisible world. And for people on the California frontier, missionaries, natives, soldiers, settlers, the world was populated by invisible beings, and the relationships, the networks that they had helped them establish how to deal with those invisible beings. The other thing that that Schuyler mentioned was objects and how objects are important to history, and that they are a very important dimension to understanding the past because they connect us physically with that past and with the people that interacted with them. So these kind of conversations for me give new life to old documents and I hope they do for you too. joining us for this episode of the California Frontier Podcast. If you like what you heard, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. But most importantly, spread the word. Let other people know. Also, be sure to check out our website at www.californiafrontier.net and send any questions, comments, or suggestions you have to me at damian at californiafrontier.net.